mustering by divisions, necessarily shaved and in a clean shirt, followed by church. It might seem the very height of levity to be playing cricket with the schooner far from finished, with stores very low and with the little island's resources in coconuts, boars, and ring-tailed apes nearly exhausted. Yet Stephen knew very well what was in Jack Aubrey's mind. The people had behaved extremely well so far, working double tides. But they were not a crew made up solely of man-of-war's men bred to the service and serving together for years at a time. At least a third had been pressed into the Navy. There were several recent drafts, and there were some king's hard bargains, including two or three sea lawyers. Yet even if they'd all been seamen, serving in the Navy since the beginning of the war, some relaxation was essential. And they'd been looking forward to this match with the liveliest anticipation. The camphor wood or palm rib bats lacked some of the elegance of willow, but the sailmaker had sewed a wholly professional ball, using leather that could be spared from gaff chores, and the players had swayed away on all top ropes to do their service credit. Furthermore, cricket formed some small part of that penny glass of ceremony which upheld the precious spirit, not indeed to be compared to the high rituals aboard such as divisions and the solemn reading of the articles of war, to say nothing of burials and rigging church, but by no means inconsiderable as a way of imposing order upon chaos. What Stephen didn't fully appreciate was the degree of pleasure that Jack took in this particular ceremony. As a captain, Aubrey was exceedingly worried by the shortage of food and marine stores, particularly cordage, by the near absence of powder, and by the coming total absence of arak and tobacco. But as a cricketer, he knew that close concentration was necessary on any pitch, above all on one like this, which more nearly resembled a stretch of white concrete than any Christian meadow. And when he came in second wicket down, the yeoman of the sheets having been bowled by the sergeant of marines for a creditable sixteen, he took centre and looked about him with an eager piercing, predatory eye, tapping the block hole with his bat, wholly taken up with the matter in hand. Aye, cried the sergeant. He took two little skips and bowled a twisting lob, pitched well up. Never mind manoeuvres, Nelson had said, always go at them. Jack obeyed his hero, leapt out, caught the ball before it landed and drove it straight at the bowler's head. The grim sergeant neither flinched nor ducked, but seized it as it flew. Out! cried Edwards, the only civilian aboard and therefore a perfect umpire. Out, son, I'm afraid. Amid the roaring of the soldiers and the universal moan of disappointment from the seamen, for the captain was well liked, both as an officer and as a dashing bat once his eye was in, Jack said, well held, Sergeant, and walked off to the three coconut palms, long since bare of fruit, that served them as a pavilion. Let it not be an omen, said Stephen, slinging his rifle and turning away. It was an exceptionally fine rifle, 
a breech-loading Joe Manton, and he'd inherited it from Mr. Fox, the British envoy they had brought out in the Diane to counteract the French negotiations with the Sultan of Pula Praban. Fox had succeeded. He'd obtained a treaty of mutual assistance. But in his eagerness to carry it home, he'd set off to sail the two hundred miles to Batavia in the ship's stout and well-manned pinnace, while the Diane was lying quietly on her reef, leaped, immovable until the next spring tide, and had been destroyed by the typhoon that destroyed the frigate. A very fine rifle. Stephen was a deadly shot, and since there was so very little powder, far too little for a general blazing away with muskets, he was the camp's chief hunter. This was a relief for everybody. During the first fortnight, he'd worn himself raw, pulling on ropes, helping to saw wood, beating home tree nails and wedges, and he'd suffered much from the inherent malignity of things. No rope pulled over the most innocent surface that didn't succeed in twisting upon itself, or catching in some minute anfractuosity or protrusion, no saw that didn't deviate from its line, no mallet that didn't strike his already bruised and purple-swollen hand. But his companions had suffered even more from having to retie all his knots and rescue him from improbable dangers, perpetually keeping one eye on the doctor and one on their work. Even when put to dig out the choked well, the softest job in hand he'd contrived to send a pick through William Gorge's foot. Yet as a hunter for the pot he was of great value to the crew. Not only was he thoroughly at home with the weapon, but he was an experienced field naturalist, long accustomed to following a track, to a silent, upwind approach, and to indefinite, motionless waiting. These were necessary qualifications, because although he had two kinds of swine, the bearded pig and the babarusa, they had both been hunted at some not very remote period, and from the beginning they'd been wary. Now the survivors were not only warier by far, but they were also very much thinner on the ground. And whereas in the first week he'd been able to provide all hands with twice the ship's ordinary allowance of pork in an evening's stroll, now he had to sweat over the whole island, sometimes for quite a small creature, sometimes indeed missing even that, his damaged powder fizzling in the breach. The trail he was following at present, however, was more promising than any he'd seen for some while. It was recent. So recent that when it reached the edge of a spiny rattan patch, he saw the outer rim of the deep hoofprint fall in. What's more, this animal was almost certainly a babarusa of nine or ten score, the first he'd seen since Thursday week. He was glad of it, because the ship's company included several Jews and many Mohammedans, united only in their hatred of swine's flesh. But a willing mind could accept the Babarusa, with his extraordinary horn-like upper pair of tusks and his long legs, as the kind of deer that might be expected on so remote an island. "'I shall go round and wait for him,' said Stephen. 
and he fetched a long cast round the rattan brake, walking slowly in the heat. The animal had almost certainly gone to sleep. The boars of this country, like all the other boars he'd ever known, were deeply conservative, devoted to the beaten track, and by now he knew most of their paths. At the other end of this one he climbed a tree that commanded the way out of the brake, and in its broad, mossy crutch he sat at his ease, embowed in orchids, of a species, a habit, and colour he'd never seen before. The low sun appeared through a gap in the clouds, sinking towards Sumatra, Billiton, the west in any case, and sloping under the canopy had lit the orchid, the whole spray of fifty or sixty orchid flowers with singular brilliance, vermilion in the wet, shining green. He was still contemplating it and its attendant insects, when the boar began moving again in the rattan brake. The sound came nearer. The boar emerged, standing motionless, its square snout twitching from side to side. With a detached, clinical look on his face, Stephen dropped it dead and climbed down from the tree. He had an apron in his knapsack, and he put it on to Gralic his pig, because although he had no objection to a little blood on his clothes, Killick had. And Killick's high, nasal, complaining, righteous voice going on and on was so disagreeable that the inconvenience of an apron on so heavy a day was nothing to it. He also had a light tackle that allowed him to heave the beast.